Time's fun when you're having flies. Here come the headlines. France and Spain are best friends now. Oxford students get riotous in bar. And HMS Dreadnought not just a battleship anymore. And Ostadi was ooh. Plus, coming up next, what would you do for some Peking duck? That was your news in a nutshell. News Bang, unveiling the naked truth one fact at a time. Alessis, 1939. On this day in 1939, the Spanish Civil War finally came to an end when Franco's nationalists, sick of the Republicans not paying their bar tabs, took control of Catalonia and sealed off the border with France. The war, which had raged for three years like a particularly rowdy fiesta, was a bloody affair that saw atrocities on both sides. The Republicans, led by a man called José, tried to resist, but were no match for Franco's superior moustache and wardrobe. As they retreated towards the Pyrenees, one Republican fighter known only as Pedro said, We fought bravely, but alas, our vests were too thin against their machine guns. The war was seen as a warm-up act for World War II, with various international players getting involved because they had nothing better to do on a Sunday afternoon. It also had religious undertones with Catholics versus anarchists, although nobody could quite remember why after all those sherries. In other news, A right old medieval melee broke out in Oxford today as a tavern brawl between students and locals left at least 90 dead. It all kicked off when two undergraduates, pissed up Pete and sodden Steve, took exception to the quality of their plonk one thing led to another, and before you could say, off with his head, half the town was swinging chairs and waving torches like it was Guy Fawkes' night. The warden of Balliol College, Professor E. Neketizitol. This disaster blamed high spirits among both sides. It started as a simple spat over some dodgy claret, but soon escalated into an all-out bloodbath. He added... Students are advised to stick to ale or mead in future. The three-day rampage saw halls trashed, heads smashed, and several dreaming spires reduced to rubble. Bystander John Barleycorn said, I've seen worse on St. Saturdays, but this lot were cleverer at swearing. 1906. 1906, and the HMS Dreadnought, a ship so terrifying it needed two underpants, set sail today armed to the gunnels with big guns and powered by thousands of angry hamsters in its turbines, it spelled doom for anyone who dared cross its path. Germany retaliated by building their own fleet of dreadnoughts, sparking an arms race that left both countries panting and out of breath. The original dreadnoughts were soon outclassed by their superiors. The super dreadnoughts. Bigger, better armed, and with added rear admirals, they patrolled the seven seas like ironclad bullies the likes of the mighty Haddock, HMS Fuzili, and Her Majesty's Pants on Fire 3 struck fear into enemy hearts. World War II saw many of these behemoths pressed into service again, too old for frontline duty but still useful as floating cheese factories or luxury barracks for admirals to entertain ladies of negotiable Morse code. But it was not to last. Advances in technology made them obsolete. A lesson to us all, don't mess with progress, you know, or you might get torpedoed. News Bang, a glimpse into the future of truth. 
Shakanaka Giles with a cold, frosty forecast. It's all looking a bit nippy, a bit drippy, and a whole lot of slippy. Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a frosty start, like a morning dip in the North Sea, but with less seals. The sun will make a brief appearance, as if it's popped out for a quick fag, before disappearing behind a cloud of gloom. Moving on to the Midlands, where it'll be a bit like a, a pensioner's birthday party, mostly grey and a bit chilly. There'll be a few snowflakes, but they'll be as ineffective as a politician's promise. Up in the north, it'll be a right proper winter's day. Snow will fall like confetti at a wedding, but without the joy or the open bar. Wrap up warm or risk losing your extremities. Over in Wales, it'll be wetter than a mermaid's bathing suit. The rain will be relentless, like a toddler asking why on repeat, bring your wellies and a sense of humour. In summary, a bit nippy, a bit drippy and a whole lot of slippy and that's all the weather. Nineteen sixty-four. In a nautical nightmare that still sends shivers down the spines of seasoned sailors, the Royal Australian Navy aircraft carrier Melbourne collided with and sank the destroyer Voyager in Jervis Bay. The tragic incident resulted in the untimely demise of 82 brave crew members. The Melbourne, a formidable vessel in its own right, earned an unwanted accolade as the only Commonwealth naval ship to sink two friendly warships during peacetime collisions. As we tread these waters of maritime misfortune, let us turn our attention to reporter Brian Bastable for further insights on this historic tragedy. Martin, we are now live on the deck of this ship, a mighty vessel in whose shadow even an ironclad such as myself seems but a gnat at the ear of a camel. It's not every day that I find myself cast into an arena where it is quite possible that my body will be torn asunder by the lethal maelstroms that surround me and all around I hear and see, as it were, such comradeship and valor amongst these good men who serve their country with unswerving loyalty. The air here is thick with jet fumes, saltwater spray and human sweat, a pungent bouquet for any aficionado of warfare to savor. Yet still there is order, discipline above all else. It's like watching the Beatles on stage without having to listen to them singing those blasted songs about boys meeting girls under love-struck skies or some such nonsense. No offense intended towards your musical tastes. I am struck now by how life has become so precious yet expendable here amidships, where sacrifice reigns supreme over safety, where each one must make peace with his own maker before taking up arms against another man he may have called brother, had circumstances been different, which indeed they are. In a moment I shall leave you and go below decks into the very heart of this beastly machine whose power can only be truly appreciated when you feel its deep-throated roar reverberating through your bones while standing within spitting distance of its insatiable maw. 
Brian Bastable reporting for Newsbang. 1962. In a stunning Cold War exchange, Rudolf Abel, a Soviet spy held by the FBI, was traded for Francis Gary Powers, the captured pilot of a CIA reconnaissance plane. The swap took place in 1962, symbolizing the delicate dance between two global superpowers. As tensions simmered and allegiances wavered, the world watched with bated breath as these two men swapped places on opposite sides of the Iron Curtain. Now, to discuss this historic event further is our correspondent, Ken Shit. Good evening, degenerates. As we hurtle towards the abyss of 2024, let's take a moment to remember the year 1962 when the world was on the brink of annihilation and two men, one a Soviet spy, the other a CIA pilot, found themselves caught in the crosshairs of a Cold War standoff. Rudolf Abel, a master of deception and a Cold War legend, was arrested by the FBI for espionage. He was a cunning fox, a wolf in sheep's clothing, a spy so deep undercover that even his own mother didn't know he was a communist. Francis Gary Powers, on the other hand, was a brave pilot who found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. His CIA spy plane was shot down over Soviet airspace and he was captured by the KGB. Powers was a hero, a patriot, a man who put his life on the line for his country. In a daring exchange, the two men were swapped, able for Powers. It was a tense moment, a gamble that could have escalated into all-out war. But the exchange was successful, and both men were returned to their respective countries. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that even in the darkest of times, there is always hope. And that hope, my friends, is what keeps us going, even when the world seems like it's falling apart at the seams. So let's raise a glass to Rudolf Abel and Francis Gary Powers, two men who stood tall in the face of adversity and who will forever be remembered as symbols of courage and resilience in the midst of a Cold War that threatened to consume us all. In a momentous turn of events, the Inter-Allied Women's Conference unfurled its wings alongside the Paris Peace Conference, marking the first instance where women lent their voices to international treaty negotiations. The conference took up matters concerning women and presented a resolution to the League of Nations Commission. Meanwhile, the Paris Peace Conference yielded five treaties that redrew Europe's map and imposed financial penalties on the defeated Central Powers. This convergence of conferences left an indelible mark on 20th century geopolitical history. And now, for a deeper dive into these extraordinary gatherings, we turn to our reporter Hardiman Pesto. Martin, I'm here in Paris 1919, where history is being made. For the first time, women are playing a role in an international peace treaty negotiation. I spoke earlier with noted suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst about the significance of this conference. Well, what did old Emmeline have to say then, Pesto? I suppose she gave you an earful about the patriarchy and women's rights and all that sort of thing, did she? Ah, no, actually, Martin. Ms. Pankhurst spoke very eloquently about the hope this conference brings for lasting world peace and equality between the sexes. She said, at last our voices will be heard when deciding the fate of nations. Come off it, Pesto. Everyone knows Emmeline Pankhurst died in 1928. You can't have spoken to her in 1919. Who've you really been speaking to? Some old suffragette impersonator, I suppose. No, no, it was definitely her. I recognize her from the newsreels. 
although I must say Martin, she looked remarkably well for a woman of 69. Hadn't aged a day since those hunger strikes in Holloway Prison. I knew it. Only you could dig up a Emmeline Pankhurst lookalike to try and pull the wool over my eyes. I suppose this faux Emmeline gave you a rousing speech about equal rights while she waved a Votes for Women banner in your face. Ah, well, I did think the banner was a bit much. But Martin, the treaty negotiations are entering a crucial phase here in Paris. Ms. Pankhurst believes this conference will usher in a new era of cooperation between the great powers. The only thing being ushered in is you, Pesto. This women's conference is running alongside the actual Paris Peace Conference, isn't it? The one with all the male diplomats carving up Europe. I bet old Emmeline had a thing or two to say about that. Well, yes, she did express some strong views on that subject, which I couldn't possibly repeat on air. Go on, Pesto, give us the unedited version. I want to hear exactly what Miss Pankhurst thinks about being sidelined by the men. Don't censor anything now. Ah, uh, I'd rather not, Martin. Suffice to say, negotiations here in Paris are rather heated at the moment. Back to you in the studio. Nice try, Pesto. You can't slither out of this one. Let's hear what choice words Emmeline Pankhurst has for those male diplomats. Come on now, give it to me straight. The people demand the truth. Oh dear, I may have misquoted dear Emmeline just a tiny bit. Please strike all that from the record. I knew it. Once again, Hardiman Pesto is exposed for the fraud he is. More lies and slander in the name of so-called journalism. Have you no shame, sir? Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Hardiman Pesto, peddler of falsehoods. Ah, now steady on, Martin. Let's not say anything we might regret here. I was merely trying to capture the spirit of this historic occasion. I may have embellished some minor details, but... Minor details? You fabricated the entire thing. Honestly, Pesto, if we cut you open, would we find even a shred of journalistic integrity or just a pile of steaming... And with tensions running high here in Paris, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Back to the studio. Don't you dare cut me off. Pesto, thank you. Hardiman Pesto there, reporting from Paris. News Bang. A dose of truth to cure the common lie. Presenting Calamity Prenderville, reporting on a heavenly smash-up from the annals of Tan 9. Space GPS, satellites playing chicken, and a British-made clean-up solution. This is Newsbang at its finest. And now, let's take a trip down memory lane to the thrilling year of 2009. Remember when Russian roulette wasn't just a game, but a real-life spectacle in the sky? That's right, folks. It was the day two satellites decided to play chicken in low Earth orbit, Iridium-33 and Cosmos-2251, both hailing from Russia, collided at a staggering speed of 11.7 kilometres per second. That's like flying from London to Manchester in under a second. Now, you might be wondering how such a thing could happen. Well, let me tell you, it was all thanks to British innovation. You see, we invented this nifty little device called the Space GPS. It was supposed to help satellites navigate around each other, but someone forgot to tell these two that they were supposed to use it. The collision occurred at an altitude of 789 kilometres, or as we like to call it, just high enough for us not to care. And the result? A cloud of debris that threatened to ruin everyone's day in space. But fear not, 
Our brilliant minds quickly devised a solution. We created the Space Sweeper, a giant vacuum cleaner that gobbles up all the debris left behind by these clumsy satellites. Sure, it might take a few decades to clean up the mess, but hey, at least we tried. So there you have it, folks. The thrilling tale of two Russian satellites playing bumper cars in the sky. All thanks to British innovation. Stay tuned for more ridiculous reports on Newsbang. Newsbang. Unravelling the knot of lies, one thread at a time. Here's Sandy O'Shaughnessy recounting the historical nuptials of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Discover the intriguing connection between the royal couple and a German sausage. Nice and easy. Ah, and a very good evening to you all. It's your old friend Sandy O'Shaughnessy here, beaming into your homes from the heart of the Emerald Isle. Now, I know it's a bit late for a history lesson, but as they say, better late than never. So, grab your cuppa, sit back, and let's take a little trip down memory lane. Ah, better. It's the year 1840, and Queen Victoria, not yet the iconic monarch we know her as, was walking down the aisle with a certain Prince Albert of Saxe, Coburg, and Gotha. A name that sounds like a cross between a German sausage and a medieval castle, if you ask me. But I digress. This young prince, hailing from a duchy in Thuringia, was about to become the prince consort, the husband of Queen Victoria, and serve in that role until his untimely death in 1861. Ah. <laughs> now, Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, a duchy that existed from 1826 to 1918, was a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, the northern part merged with other Thuringian states to form the Free State of Thuringia, while the southern part became part of Bavaria. It's a bit like that time when my cousin Seamus tried to make a shepherd's pie. The top half was delicious, but the bottom half, well, let's just say it ended up in the bin. Ah, <laughs> But back to our royal lovebirds. Queen Victoria, who reigned as the Queen of the United Kingdom from 1837 until her death in 1901, was known for her long and influential reign, the Victorian era. And it all started with this marriage to Prince Albert in the hallowed halls of St. James's Palace in London, the most senior royal palace and the ceremonial meeting place for the royal family. Ah. <laughs> now, you might be wondering, what exactly does a royal consort do? Well, in the British monarchy, they have no constitutional power, but they've had significant influence. There have been 11 royal consorts since the Union of the Crowns in 1707, uh, it's a bit like being the vice-captain of a football team. You might not get to lift the trophy, but you still get to wear the shirt and bask in the glory. Ah. <laughs> and speaking of glory, I received a letter from Mrs. O'Reilly in Kilkenny, who writes, Dear Sandy, I found a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. What should I do with it? Well, Mrs. O'Reilly, I'd say you've got two options. You could either invest it wisely, or you could throw the biggest party Kilkenny has ever seen. Ah. <laughs> but as the clock strikes midnight and the Sandman comes calling, it's time for me to bid you all a fond farewell. Remember, history is a bit like a good book. It's full of twists and turns, ups and downs, and it's always worth a read. So, until next time, keep those letters coming. And as always, see you later, alligator. 
in a while. Crocodile. Sandy O'Shaughnessy. Signing off. The venerable Namdemon Gate in Seoul, South Korea, was once a victim of an egregious act of arson in the year 2008. A national treasure and a symbolic southern boundary during the Yosean dynasty, its loss was deeply mourned. However, like the mythical phoenix, it has risen from the ashes and been restored to its former glory. The gate now stands proudly open to the public since 2013. And now we turn to our correspondent Smithsonian Moss for a closer look at the restoration process of Namdemun Gate. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, culture vultures, it's your high priestess of pop, Smithsonian Moss, and I'm here to dish out a hot slice of history with a side of arsony goodness. Picture it. Seoul, 2008 a time when the iPhone was still a baby and everyone was losing their minds over Twilight. But forget about sparkly vampires because we've got a flaming gate to talk about. So, there's this ancient gate, right? Namdamun, a big ol' hunk of history, standing tall since the 14th century serving up dynasty realness. It's like the granddaddy of Korean landmarks. One of the national treasures, honey. And then some joker with a lighter thinks, hmm, what this gate needs is a little pizzazz. And just like that, it's a barbecue pit. I mean, can you imagine? You're just strolling through Seoul, maybe thinking about what kind of kimchi to have for dinner, and then you see the country's numero uno treasure going up in smoke like a bad magic trick. It's like someone decided to throw the world's worst cookout and didn't even have the decency to bring marshmallows. But here's the kicker. My peeps. They rebuilt it. Yeah, by 2013, Namdamun was back, baby, looking like it just stepped out of a time machine, all shiny and new. It's like that gate went through some extreme makeover. Dynasty edition. They probably had a little gate-warming party with tiny gate-sized cocktails and everything. So... What's the moral of the story? Don't play with matches, kids. Or, if you're going to set fire to a national treasure, at least make sure you've got a killer restoration team on speed dial. And that's the tea, or should I say, the firewater, on Namdamun's little hot mess moment. That's all from me, Smithsonian Moss, your irreverent time-traveling tour guide through the ages. Remember, when life gives you lemons, don't set them on fire. Peace out. News Bang, the daily dose of reality served with a slice of humor. And just time for a look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times, Mandela released from prison. There's a picture there of Nelson Mandela looking old. The Independent, BBC screens first sci-fi on TV. There's a photograph there of a robot. The Daily Mail. London University founded as first secular in England. There's a picture there of a man in a gown. And finally, The Guardian. Mandela free after 27 years. There's a sketch there of Nelson Mandela looking old. That's it. And on the day that Mr. Kangaroo from East Finchley has been ordered to remove his offending sign from his front gate, we wish him all the best in his new home in Wigan. Good night from us all here at Newsbang. 
Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.